Well, good morning. So last week, uh, when when I came on Sunday and did a Sunday school, I taught on the Great Commission. And if you haven't heard that, commend it to you. Probably not the best sermon, but I did want to, or the best teaching, but I did really want to show and, and give an example or reveal how the command to be fruitful and multiply is fulfilled in Christ. And this is a great and high calling because now... Uh, we're called to go and be fruitful and evangelize, be fruitful and multiply the nations through the preaching of the gospel. Um, but today, I decided that I ought to give some practical insight on the act of evangelism. Um, and I'm not here to brag on myself or anything like that. But since I got saved, I've been evangelizing. Just kind of in, first, I started just. You know, in my own circle, in my own spheres, at the laundromat, at the grocery store, uh, family, friends. And then I got to tracks and then street preaching. And so these are just some things that I thought would be helpful in a street ministry context. Because I guarantee you are going to come across these 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 things. And uh, I really want you all to be prepared for when they happen. Um Also, I want to I want to say this, uh, just add a word of caution that uh, I just want to say that many of the things that I'm about to advise are not a one size fits all solution to everything. Uh, You can't give a canned approach to evangelism because every circumstance is different. And so we need to be renewing our mind daily. We all have to be renewing our minds so that way we you know, we're led by the spirit, led by the word in each situation and we know how to act in accordance with God's word in every context. Um, yeah, there's there's way too many variables to give uh, a one-size-fits-all approach. But before we get into these con- these uh, topics, um, I heard something really uh, beneficial as I was studying sermons on evangelism, looking at the scriptures on evangelism. And there was one man who was sent to teach a church how to evangelize. I think that they were going to do the same thing we are. We're uh, going to the community, pass out tracts. And he started by saying something really important. He said that, he goes, I don't care about, I, I really don't care if you evangelize or not. He goes, I'm more concerned with who you are. Because if you are a Christian, if you're growing in Christ likeness, you're going to evangelize. So that's first and foremost. We could do a lot of activities and really not be gospel-centered, gospel-focused. So uh, that's really important. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, And then to quote him, he said this. He said, do you want to be a good evangelist? Then be a good Christian. And by the way, this goes for everything else that we're called to do as, as Christians. Do you want to be a good employee? Be a good Christian. Do you want to be a good husband, a good dad? Be, be a good Christian. If you want to be more merciful, be a good Christian. Uh, so look to Christ in everything. Grow in, in, in sanctification and you will evangelize. These things will start to happen naturally as you look to him. So the first topic that I want to introduce is persecution and uh we might think it's kind of silly to think that we're going to get persecuted in paris texas but uh you know i'll remind you of what paul told timothy 
He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whether that's in the context of evangelism or that's in the context of everyday life, you will be persecuted for your faith. And, you know, I've preached in in the West End district in Dallas where there's like a lot of homeless people, people who come out of prison, go there to live with the other homeless people. And you would think, well, of course you're going to get persecuted there, right? Because they're all ex-convicts. But even here in Mayberry, I mean, Paris, Texas, <laughs> you will be, just kidding, you will be persecuted um, as well. And I also think about this too, is that, uh, think of the worst of the worst person. The, all men are rebels of God, from Hitler all the way to your unconverted grandmother that changed your diapers. They all hate God. And so you're going to be persecuted by every single class of person and anybody. Okay. So that's established. And, um, and again, I'm not trying to brag here, but I just want to let you know, I think it's important that uh, whenever someone's teaching on something, they, they're hearing from someone that's experienced, you know, uh, the, the thing they're talking about. And so, yeah, I've been, you know, had crump, uh, tracks that I've handed out, crumpled and thrown at me. People taking tracks, lighting them on fire and stuff like that. People coming to you in your face, shouting, screaming at you, uh, cursing at you. You could feel the spit on your face. Um, uh, threatened with your life. If you don't stop talking, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to do something to you but it's all for God's glory Um, so what do you do when that happens as I read in the New Testament it seems that there there are only two uh, options that's it and these two options are hard to hear as Americans right or whatever, wherever you're from, they're hard to hear. Suffering and fleeing are the only two options I see in the scriptures for persecution. It seems to be the dominant pattern in the book of Acts and of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our pattern and example for evangelism. Uh, in, In Acts, there are a couple of instances where Paul makes use of his civil rights to avoid being whipped. But ultimately, Paul suffers for the sake of the gospel. Suffering persecution is one of the ways where the rubber meets the road, uh, so to speak, of our faith. And so um, I want everyone to be thinking about this before you go out to the square, before you do anything really in the Christian life. Are you willing to suffer persecution or are you going to fight back? Are you going to try to stop it? Are you willing to obey Christ? In Matthew 5.38 to 48, or are you going to uh, kick against the goats, so to speak? So let's go ahead and turn there to Matthew uh, Matthew 5.38. We're going to read from there in a moment. Matthew 5.38. 
Matthew 5.38. And before we read, I want to make this comment. This is the comment I want to make before we read. Don't listen to any other shepherd on on the matter of persecution or any other uh, theory. Right. We, we have the scriptures. They're sufficient for everyday life. Anything outside is is unbiblical advice, unbiblical uh, commandments or, or, or ideas. We want to follow our Lord. And there are a lot of talking heads on various platforms. Who they're spouting their own worldly opinions, ideologies, theories. Some of them, even these theories come from the scriptures, but I think that they're wrong, right? Because We're going to see in a minute. I'm going to make a case for this in a moment. Different ideologies and worldviews and perspectives that contradict what we're about to read. That contradict your shepherd. And so I think it would be, we would do well to think about the words of Joshua. He says, choose as they whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of unbiblical worldviews or are you going to serve our Lord? So let's go ahead and read Matthew 5, 38. He says, you have heard it said. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he who has for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brothers what more are you doing than others do not even the gentiles do the same you therefore you my disciples therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I suspect that this is one of the Bible passages that a lot of people wish wasn't there or we could erase it, but it's there. So what is so Jesus is speaking here as one with authority, right? He comes into the world. He begins his earthly ministry and they say no one has spoke like this man because he speaks as one with authority. The Sermon on the Mount, I've done intensive study in this right here and and on this context on this narrative the sermon on the mount demonstrates how he's the new and greater moses he isn't just a prophet like moses but but he's god he's a god man and just as moses went up on the mountain on mount sinai and gave the law of god to israel we have jesus who has gone up on the mountain the son of god god and he, being God in the flesh, is giving the law, is giving what the law pointed to, right? The law of Christ. He comes and he 
fulfills it. And he gives it to true Israel, his disciples. Jesus says, you heard it said, right? And then he quotes the Torah, the law. Then he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So please allow me to make a marginal note here. This is really important because, like I said, there's even theologians that make doctrines and teachings, right? And we want to be able to be good Bereans and test those doctrines. And one of the ways that we test teaching is, is like this. If we want to interpret what the Bible says about how to respond to persecution or any other teaching that comes in our ears, we must go to the final authority, Jesus Christ. The entire Bible must be interpreted through him like a filter and through his apostles because he's the one that sent them to teach and lay the foundation of, you know, of the gospel. Through the New Testament. So the New Testament is our filter for interpretation. So what is the scriptural basis for what I just said? Well, go to Luke 9.35 really quick. Luke 9.35. And this is where the Father has commanded us to listen to his Son, the Mount of Transfiguration, which also is another uh, reason that uh, another proof text that proves that Jesus is the greater Moses. Because just as Moses goes up on the mountain with the elders of Israel, the glory cloud comes down. Now Jesus, the greater Moses, goes up on the mountain with his disciples and the glory cloud comes down. And Moses is there. Elijah's there. And what does God say? Listen to Moses? No. Listen to Elijah? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Listen, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So we would do well to listen to what Jesus says in all matters, even if even in the matter of how to respond to persecution. He commands us to turn the other cheek, to give them your cloak also. If they force you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs you, love your enemies, and pray for your persecutors. And then he answers the question, so, so why? Why should we do those things? Why should we do those things? Look at Matthew 5.45. If you want, you can turn back. Matthew 5.45. Or, uh, he answers this question. Why should we... Uh, suffer persecution. He says, so that so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And how do these things make us sons? They make us sons because they're the deeds that the Father is doing and we're supposed to emulate or exemplify the nature and the character of God. We're image bearers of God now through faith in Jesus Christ. So they make us sons because they are deeds that the Father does. And then look at the second sentence in verse 45. He says, for, or you could say because, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God is good to his enemies. Therefore, he is perfect. We want to be perfect as he is perfect. Therefore, we desire to obey these commandments. So if God's good to his enemies, we want to be good to our enemies as well, the people that persecute us. The reason why I'm really emphasizing on persecution today is because, like I said, uh, I've done a lot of street evangelism with a lot of different people. And um, I'll give you one example. Uh, this, this, uh, the, these evangelists, I wasn't working with them or laboring with them. We just happened to cross paths and meet each other a little bit. And they were preaching. And then this man passes by drunk probably and says, shut up. He tells him to shut up. And then the evangelist yells right back, no, you shut up. 
you shut up like that, like kind of aggressively, like he was going to do something if the guy didn't back down. We don't want to take that posture. If someone tells you something like that, it says bless, not curse. If someone curses you, you bless, you pray, and you desire that they're going to be saved. Um, I've even heard stories of, of people... Uh, get evangelists striking back, fighting back. Um, that's not a good witness. And I was thinking about this too, is that here in Paris, Texas, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, if you're going to make a presence on the square quarterly, passing out tracks, they're going to say, oh, that's the church that does this. That's that church that does this. So you're going to form and build a reputation and you want it to emulate Christ as much as possible especially in the beginning uh, and throughout. But you want to make a good first impression on the square. Uh, you don't want to be known as rabble-rousers and uh, the like. Now, we don't have all the time to do this, um, but I did a survey of every instance in the book of Acts where they were persecuted. It was like about a dozen, and I saw that Uh, They either suffered or they fled. They suffered or they fled. That was it. And with the exception, like I said, of Paul using his rights to avoid being flogged. But then again, he just, it seems like Paul knew he had to get to Rome. And so he's trying to, to, he's going for longevity here. He wants to make it to Rome, right? And he stays and he doesn't, he just suffers. And and it's in order to preach the gospel in Rome, because in Acts, it says that the Holy Spirit Wit, uh, testify to him that he had to go there and to make his name known in, in all the to the ends of the earth. So I'm just going to uh, cite the the text and then I'll just comment on it. Since we don't have a lot of time, we can't read all of the passages. So uh, Acts 13:50 to 52. Let me just read a couple of them. So it says. Uh, uh, if you want, go ahead and turn there. Acts 13, 50 to 52. Uh, that way you get a little bit of blood circulating. Just kidding. Acts 13, 50 to 52. So, but the Jews, so it says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Uh, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what do we see happen? What form of persecution do we see? They're driven out of the city. They're kicked out of the city. What's their response? They went for their six-shooter. No, they didn't do that. They shook off their dust from their feet, the, the dust from their feet, and they went to another city. They fled. And this is how the gospel, this is the catalyst for evangelism and missions. Persecution just multiplies and increases the word of God. And then again, it says that uh, they were filled with joy. Christ says in Matthew 5.12, Rejoice in the day of persecution, for great is your reward in heaven. Um, Then the next one, go ahead and turn to the, well, yeah, go ahead and go to, Acts 14, 19 through 22. Let's look at an extreme example of persecution and then the response. 
Acts 14, 19 to 22. Uh, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on to, to, to he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying this, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God, not through avoiding it. So this is an extreme case. Imagine if uh, I went out to the to the Paris Square alone, and I'm sure this probably won't happen, right? But let's say I'm beaten up. The people think I'm dead, and right? Uh, most people would say, Steve, you got to press charges. we got to find out who those guys were, and... Uh, maybe uh, go to the uh, you know the 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 news and and start a big thing and protest, but no, just we continue preaching the gospel, we continue laboring and praying for those who have persecuted us. Now I'm just going to cite these now, and I'm probably not even going to spend time. We're going to move on to the next topic, but I'm just going to cite them: Acts 20 through 22 through 24, Acts 16 22 to 40. Um, Acts 17, 5 to 15, uh, Acts 19, 28 to 20, to, uh, Acts 19, 28 to chapter 20, verse 3. All of these are examples of persecution, Acts 22, 25 through 26. All of them uh, show the disciples fleeing or suffering persecution. So I'm going to make just one last concluding comment and then move on to the next. So why should we suffer mistreatment as Christians to preach the gospel? Because our Lord suffered to preach the gospel to us, even though we persecuted him when we were lost. We hated Christ. You know, if we would have been among the people when he was crucified, saying crucify him, crucify him. We we, we did not love Christ. All men are enemies of God, yet Christ came and died in our place. He suffered so that we would be saved. And in the same way, we, as followers of him, exemplify him. We are like him in that we suffer so that we can get the gospel out, so that they're saved as we preach Christ to them. Because, we've, because we have been loved, we love unconverted sinners. And uh, a Christian, I wrote this too, is that a Christian man is cut from a different cloth. He's not like the world. And a lot of people think that mightiness or strength is going back in there and fighting again, right? We see all these action movies of the hero coming back and, uh, you know, vindicating himself. But the Psalms and all of the scriptures say that vindication belongs to the Lord. And if we look here at Proverbs 19.11, it says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. That strength is the power to control your own emotions through the power of the Holy Spirit. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. So if you come with us to evangelize, you'll need to overlook many transgressions, I guarantee you. There's going to be people that are going to slight you, 
like, for example, if you pass a track to someone and they just, you know, like that, they don't, they, they ignore you. You're going to have to overlook that and, and continue and stay encouraged and, and continue laboring despite the fact that someone didn't want to take the track from you. You can't get offended like that. And then Proverbs 16:32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who t- overtakes the city. You'll need to have a solid Christ-like temperament to evangelize. Okay, the second one is very important too. It's, uh, this one's uh, knowing your audience. Um, knowing your audience. I heard a story of a brother that uh, he's a great brother and he's a he's a missionary. Uh, he's dedicated years of his life living in poverty and getting the gospel out. But he just wasn't very good at teaching children's Bible study. <laughs> he treated them as if it was an adult Bible study. Um, and my point is that we have to know our audience. OK. And just to kind of ground my argument in scripture, uh, I'm going to let you know. I just want to say this. I combed through each sermon in Acts every time that they witnessed, every time they evangelized, I combed through that. And I, and I made notes and I noticed that the difference between when the apostles preached to the Jews and when they preached to the Gentiles was very different. When they preached, to, when they preached the gospel to the Jews, they quoted the Old Testament. Uh, they sought to prove that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who was prophesied by, their, by, by the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The reason why they did, what, did that was that the Jews were already familiar with Old Testament stories since they studied them every Sabbath. They heard the law and the prophets of the Psalms every Sabbath. And uh, so that's why he did that. However, when they spoke to non-Jewish people, they didn't quote the Old Testament that much. Rather, it seems as though they alluded to Old Testament scripture and summarized the main idea of the gospel without directly quoting the Old Testament. A good example of this is Paul on Mars Hill before the Areopagus. He didn't use he didn't quote the Old Testament at all. He didn't quote it at all. If you look at it, he didn't quote it at all. Instead, he summarized the key themes of the Bible, of the gospel. And even though Paul summarized it, one source uh, had counted uh, Nestle's Greek New Testament um, uh, allusions, and the, uh, Nestle's Greek New Testament counted about 40 Old Testament references in that little speech that God gave, that Paul gave to the Areopagus. 40 new, uh, Bible allusions um, in that little speech, without quoting it. So we can do the same thing. We have to basically summarize uh, with some people, especially with younger people like um, young people like Silas's age, right? That didn't grow up in a Christian context, in, in a Christian home, uh, are going less and less and less to church. They're practically ignorant. They don't know anything about the Bible. And so we don't want to go there and, and start saying, uh, talking about substitutionary atonement or referring to the second coming of Christ as the parousia. We want to, you know what I mean? We want to uh, get down on their level and speak to them at their level. Um, and this means that we actually have to humble ourselves, right? Because 
what happens, right? Paul says that knowledge puffs up. And so we listen to a lot of really sound theologians. Uh, some of us read uh, the unabridged version of John Owens, and uh, <laughs> which I find hard to follow. But And so we're, we're not living in that era. We can preach John Owen doctrine in a simple fashion to children. And I'll even go further. I mean, uh, many of you have children. And I'm sure you've bought books and, and Christian material that's at their level, right? Um, and so this is one way in which that we try to reach people of different ages and even different levels of education as well. Um, okay, let me stick to my transcript because there's a couple of really uh, manuscript because there's a couple of really important things I wanted to share. Um, we need to take time. We have to be aware and explain the gospel in plain language for some people. And I just want to give you an example of, of a reformed pastor, Robert Murray McShane. But before that, I just want to read this. It says, we don't need to use terms like w, double imputation. Even phrases like bearing fruit, they don't have context. They don't know what that means. Uh, substitutionary atonement, etc. Instead, we can explain these essential and glorious doctrines in plain language. For example, instead of saying double imputation, Robert Murray McShane explained it this way. He said, he was a doing as well as a dying savior. He not only suffered all that we should have suffered, but obeyed all that we should have obeyed. And so this is a way of kind of unpacking these, these, these teachings, right? And we want to remove all stumbling blocks from them. We don't want to be like the Jews and place stumbling blocks in their way. And uh, furthermore, as you know, I've, I work in an inner city public school in Dallas, Texas, where about 60% of the students' first language is Spanish. And our testing data in, in Texas shows that students all over Texas across the board are scoring at about 60 to 70 percent on their English end of course exams. And uh, so what does that say, right? Our younger generations need to be evangelized a certain way. Um, and I know this firsthand because I witnessed to my students. I've told the kids the gospel, the, you know, the pure gospel. I've told many of them. And when I started off, I think I uh, started using language and then I figured out that they're not understanding what I'm saying. They're looking at me like, uh, you know, what is what does this word mean? OK. Um, so you can explain it in an easy way without compromising the gospel. You really can. And um, the carnal mindset would be, well, that's their problem. It's not my fault that they're too ignorant to understand Jonathan Edwards. However, we should have the mindset of Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.3 when he said this, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Because when we stand before God on Judgment Day, He's going to He, he knows our hearts. He knows why we didn't do something, why we did something. And we can't sit there and say, oh no, Lord, I didn't know. He, he knows our hearts. And so... We don't want anything to be found at fault with our ministry on that day. And Paul was willing to suffer being beaten, being imprisoned, to not put an obstacle in anyone's way. I think we can suffer a little bit of humility in this area. Even Jonathan Edwards changed his style of preaching when he preached to the Native Americans. He went on a, on a long, uh, on, 
he went for some time as he uh, as a missionary to the Native Americans. And when he preached to them, he arranged his sermons inductively, beginning with his conclusion first and then explaining it within the body. Whereas when he preached to his own congregation, he started first with doctrines and then made a, 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 his conclusion at the end. So he starts with the, the conclusion, works it out for the Native Americans. Many theologians have recognized that he did that. Um, so, okay, suffer with me five more minutes. There's one more thing I need to say. So if, if you're called to evangelism, like, right, everyone's called to evangelize, but there are some that are gifted with the gift of evangelism. And uh, you will need to be aware that you are responsible for witnessing to every person. And I'm talking about ex-convicts, drug addicts, the rich, the poor, homeless, people who have homes, college students, high school dropouts, high school students, everybody. Everybody needs it. The Lord may bring people into your life, uh, open doors for you to share the gospel with somebody, and you have to be prepared for that. Maybe there's people in your family, in your sphere. You maybe have a, an uncle or uh, your parents who didn't finish high school. My dad didn't finish high school. And I have had conversations with him, and it is hard explaining the gospel to him. Um, yeah, you have to really be patient with him. So I'm, there's there, and also because Spanish was his first language, and he didn't. No, he did finish high school. He only has a high school to, uh, education, and uh, Spanish was his first language. So he struggles a little bit. Um, so the last point I want to make is partiality, is on partiality. Uh, and I kind of touched on this already that we're responsible for preaching the gospel to every creature. Acts 10, 34 through 35, uh, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Jesus in Mark 16, 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We are called to preach the gospel to every nation, not only our, our own. Uh, our concern should, shouldn't be for those of our own who are like us, but men everywhere. And then notice what Paul, what Peter said in Acts 10.34. He says, which marks the beginning of the preaching of the gospel to the nations after the resurrection of Christ. Right, Cornelius and Peter. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand God shows no partiality. Um, but in every nation, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Uh, so soon, um, soon I'm going to mention why I'm emphasizing partiality by explaining why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. But before that, let's look at a few more verses. So James 2, 1, James 2, uh, verse 1, and then verse 8. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then jump down to verse 8. If you really fulfill, if 
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by law as transgressors. So what I don't want to happen is we're walking on the square. And I've had this, these impulses as well. I don't want to talk to that guy. I don't want to talk to that woman. Um, it's carnal. It's carnality. Don't uh, go on the square and then avoid someone because they're they're homeless, right? And a, a lot of homeless people want to be homeless, right? They don't want to work. I've talked to some that are like that, but even though they uh, don't deserve uh, our interaction, right? It's called mercy for a reason. We're merciful. We've been showed mercy, so we want to show them mercy. We want to talk to them. We want to sh- share the gospel with them, make them new. Okay, so the Torah, which Christ replaces as being the fulfillment of it and supreme example of of it, says the law is summed up by love for your neighbor and love for God. If you are partial with whom you share the gospel with, you are in sin, a transgressor of the commandments of Christ. So the, I'm going to jump to, to Jonah now because I think it's we're running out of time and it's very... I found Jonah to be very edifying, very edifying. Okay, so uh, here's in the context of Jonah. Acts 20, verse 4. This one melted my heart. I wanted to weep when I, when I read it. Because after all that Paul suffered as an evangelist, as a missionary, uh, he's on his third missionary journey. He's been persecuted again. And now he has people from the nations that he witnessed to accompanying him. So Peter, the Berean, uh, son of uh, Pyrrhus accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and of and, and, and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians. So you have all these different people, right? Paul didn't show partiality. He preached the gospel to everyone. Wherever Christ wasn't known, he preached the gospel to them. And Paul was faithful to Jesus and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He didn't show partiality toward his own kinsmen like uh, the Jews, like Jonah did, right? I think by I think by Acts 20, Paul was already on his third missionary journey. Excuse me, I said that already. Let me jump down. So I mentioned Jonah. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Can anybody t- answer that question? Why didn't Jonah want to go? Do you remember? He was afraid they repent. Yes, he was afraid they repent. Lord, I knew that you were a merciful God and you'd show them mercy. He didn't want God to be merciful merciful to them. Why? They were Gentiles. Gentiles, And they were from Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. That's debatable, but I think it was the capital city of Assyria. The same nation that came in and was used by God to judge Israel, pillage and plunder them, decimate them, take his people his own nation into captivity. He says, I don't want them to be saved, Lord. You saw they did something to my nation. I don't want them to be saved. So he didn't want to go. And um, so we should not be partial like Jonah was. Jonah was in disobedience. There's so much in Jonah. I wish I could just import it to you. But here's one thing. The last takeaway is that Jesus is the greater Jonah. He was obedient to God and went to the nations and preached the gospel. He didn't turn back. He didn't shy away. 
And then we are also called to go to all nations. Peter was even hesitant. No, Lord, nothing unclean touched my lips. He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles today and you're going to preach the gospel to them. So we also must follow in the pattern that Christ has given us as evangelists, as Christians in general. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for this great salvation that you've worked out for us in Christ Jesus. That uh, though he was that though he was God the Son, he came down from heaven, took upon flesh, and died for the sins of man, uh, so that we would be reconciled to him through faith, Lord. And I pray that this gospel would be the catalyst for evangelism in every other area in our life, that we who have been shown mercy should be merciful. We who have been preached the gospel to are called to go preach the gospel and multiply the nations. And we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.